Hey, what is up, guys? Today's episode is brought to you by the incredible sponsors of the program, ChemicalFreeBody.com. If health and wellness is a priority for you, then check out the incredible products over at ChemicalFreeBody. Plant-based nutritional supplements from Super Greens, my favorite, with all the vitamins, minerals, and nutrients, and micronutrients in just one single scoop. Toss it in your glass of water, your shake, your smoothie, however you want to do it. They also have other incredible products, gut detoxers, anti-inflammatories, immune boosters, and so much more. ChemicalFreeBody.com and check out that promo code, it's me, all one word, it's me for discounts at your checkout. And look, we have so many different insurance policies in our life. And if the last couple years has taught you anything, it taught me that storable food needs to be on that list. Prepare with itsme.com, the incredible products over at My Patriot Supply. They have four-week supply of food, three-month supply, all products with up to a 25-year shelf life. Have the peace of mind, ladies and gentlemen, of having storable food and have that supply on deck. It's better to have it and not need it than to need it and not have it. And uh, if you have, you know, shaving needs like nice chrome domes like me, SkullShaver.com is a whole new concept in face and head shaving. The products offered over there include men's head shavers, face shavers, hair clippers, and trimmers. And ladies, we haven't forgot about you with the butterfly kiss. And we also have a large selection of accessories to make your life that much more simple. All of the shavers come with uh, removable, washable blades made of premium Japanese stainless steel to ensure flawless results. It just makes it so much easier. You can get your shaving done anytime, anywhere, in or out of the shower. It gets no better. Skullshaver.com, front slash discount, front slash it's me. All of the links to these incredible products will be in the description of this episode. So without further delay, ladies and gentlemen, enjoy the show. Everything, everything. Everything gonna be all right this morning. All right, all right, here we go, ladies and gentlemen, off to the races for another episode of It's Me Speaking to You, Jeffrey Wilson, always your ever faithful host. And today I'm super stoked for this one. I was just saying uh, to him, I apologize for my due diligence in making sure we put this together, but he's a very, very busy man. So pinning him down to make this happen, it's not been difficult, but it's just taken a little bit of time. He is a writer, director, producer, podcast host. We're going to get into all of it. So, so very thankful for his time today, Mr. Don Sikorsky, chilling with us today. How you doing, sir? I'm doing well. How are you? I cannot complain, bro. Every day above ground is a good day, man, so got to count them blessings. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, you know, like I kind of mentioned, man, this, as anybody's familiar with this case, whether it's Biggie or Tupac, there's so, so many layers to this, so many names, so much to unpack, so it's one of those, like, where to start? But before I get ahead of myself, a little background on you, man. When did you get yourself into the game, the producing, filmmaking? I know uh, journalism out of NYU. What got you started? Well, I think at the time when I came out of NYU, I was trying to figure out what to do as a journalist, whether I wanted to write. I was working at a magazine, and there was a rumor that was going around New York City of this secret unit within the New York City Police Department that had connections to the FBI. And they, at the time, they were calling it the hip-hop police. Yeah. So in, in an effort to tell that story, I went up, I bought a camera at the infamous B&H camera store in New York City, and I spent about three years telling that story um, which basically, you know, they're there at that time. This is around 2000, early 2000s. You know, the, the NYPD, the FBI, the United, United States attorney's offices were sort of trying to make a, a connection between hip hop and 
the criminal underworld. Um, around that time is, is when Murder, Inc. Records, which was, was owned by Irv Gotti, was indicted by the, the Eastern District. So, you know, I, I went out and interviewed sort of the NYPD players that were involved. I interviewed a tremendous amount of people inside hip hop. And that was sort of my film school, for lack of a yeah. better word. Well, you hit the ground running. I think it was 2006. I, I definitely think people should check this out. I might have my date wrong, but 2006, uh, he produced Rap Sheet, Hip Hop, and The Cops. And that's something I'd always heard of, too. Man, I'm kind of a, you know, grew up on hip hop. I kind of dug a little more East Coast more. But I always heard about the hip hop police, didn't exactly know what it was or what it was about. But, you know, within that, I found it so almost disturbing. You, you realized, come to the realization of this 500 page secret book this dossier on just rappers from all over the country talk to me about that a little bit yeah i was i was able to someone within the miami police department fedexed me the actual book which which i funny enough i still have you know and, and within that book it was a, a form of a surveillance book so they had pages for jay-z for 50 cent for pretty much anyone that was relevant at that time in hip hop, the book also contains, you know, some notorious street figures, whether it was Kenneth Supreme McGriff or some of these other guys at the time that sort of, you know, came out of 80s New York and in the crack era. Um, and and that book was what I used in the in the documentary. You know, I would show up in an office and. For example, I did an, an interview with Buster Rhymes and I'd put the book in front of him and it sort of triggered many responses of <laughs> their experiences being followed by, you know, undercover cars being tracked if they went into different cities, i.e. whether L.A. or Miami. Um, so it, it was I thought it was an interesting, you know, story in a sense of of a billion dollar business yeah um with a spotlight um within it around you know some of also the violent incidents that had t uh, taken place specifically uh, a shootout at the time that happened outside of hot 97 the popular radio station in new york city um That's so the one involving you know Lil, this Lil is Kim? also coming was that the one involving little yeah, yeah yeah and this is this is also you know <laughs> Um, a heavily policed New York City um, in the Giuliana, Giuliani era, you know, Blatt, uh, Bratton's flying around, you know, the infamous NYPD chief, um, Ray Kelly, you know, so these guys were, were very astute at creating sort of these units um, to address what they saw as some some problems within the industry. When you mentioned Kenneth Supreme McGriff, he was rumored to have affiliation with Irv Gotti and the kind of legal troubles he was dealing with, was he not? Yeah, that's sort of what the case um, that the Eastern District tried to um, put forth in court um, was this connection uh, to Supreme and a form of, of money laundering. Um, you know, Irv and his brother – in in a rarity actually beat um the united states government at trial um and you know you could sort of um make the case that that case was was more of a sexy headline in the new york times and new york and 
you know, post and daily news um, at that time for U.S. attorneys. Um, You know, Murder, Inc. Records was a very successful, you know, entity and operation, and they sort of tried to connect Supreme to it in a way. Um, I thought at the time it was very thin and obviously had some he had some great lawyers who sort of came out of, you know, the 80s mafia trials um, that defended him. And and, you know, they beat the case. Which is pretty unprecedented because when the feds line up on you, they're not used to taking L's when it comes to. No, no. I mean, you know, in the eastern and southern districts, I think their their percentage of of winning is 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 in upwards of the high 80s to 90 percent of the time if you're indicted. Yeah, without a doubt. And I think it's I think it's important that as we move into this larger conversation of what went on with Big and LAPD, et cetera, I think it's interesting to have this kind of context about this is not a new thing necessarily cops involvement in investigating surveilling hip-hop artists etc um yeah and it's watching that documentary was kind of interesting to hear some of those those cops and how they were rationalizing like some of these guys hadn't done anything wrong but they were just rationalizing. yeah we're we're surveilling and we have all this information on them you you just never know kind of thing it's almost like pre-crime kind of thought process and like rationalizing why they're surveilling these people who haven't actually even done anything wrong yet yeah that that was the dichotomy at the time was this idea that, you know, I think some of the justification of it was this idea that they were there for protection, you know, whether if, if it was, you know, this was when 50 Cent was sort of driving around in a bulletproof suburban and, you know, they would go to performances, concerts, the clubs, what have you. There was many people, not many, but there were investigators who sort of worked undercover um, I spoke to, to, to one guy, uh, a guy by the name of Bill Courtney, who was cross deputized as he was an NYPD guy, but he was sort of cross deputized as a DEA and, um, FBI agent and that allowed him to, um, create these sort of, uh, bigger, uh, criminal investigations within the industry. Well, and yeah, like I said, as we move forward into these conversations, whether it's Biggie or Pac, you, you got a lot of people wearing multiple hats, whether it's police, in addition to being undercover, FBI or ATF or DEA. But yeah, man, it's it's pretty wild. But, you know, one of the things that really I, I started in this whole thing many, many moons ago, 2002, Nick, Nick Broomfield's Biggie and Tupac. That's where I first came across like Reg, uh, uh, Reggie Wright, really, Russell Poole, Big Gene Deal. This is the first time I ever really heard these names. And, you know, you, the, the movie's awesome, man. City of Lies, you were executive producer. Uh, Brad Furman's the director, starring Johnny Depp as Russell Poole, Forrest Whitaker. And so what was the bug that bit you? Obviously, you, you know, had a hankering for, you know, these kind of cases, et cetera. What got you into the Biggie case and subsequently the movie? Yeah, so it, it was sort of a, a funny enough, the timing of things was interesting. Um, I was hired to produce a television show called who shot uh tupac and biggie and that aired on the fox network and as the producer of that what was interesting about my job is at that time the production company prior to me doing that project had been sued by by a family i think it was john benet ramsey's family so when I came on to do that project, they handed me basically two lawyers and an investigator where 
um, in hunting down information and people, I had sort of access to these investigators that could get me information. And I was reading these documents. And for me at that time, I have to be honest, I had already thought this story had been done in a way, you know, um, there was so many any docs prior to that. There were so many books that were done. I kind of was tired of it. But in those yeah. documents, I came across Phil Carson's name. And obviously, I saw that he was an FBI agent. And I thought in a million years, he would never speak to me, give me information. But I said, you know what, I'm going to send an email to this email address that they had given me. And I'm going to make a phone call. And sure enough, he picks up the phone. And Phil at that time was still in the FBI. And if you know the FBI, you know, for the most part, they're very tight lipped with anything, especially if they're still within the FBI. But he basically said, I got a story to tell and I'm retiring in three or four months and I want to tell it to somebody. Well, what was interesting about that is, is I actually wanted to put him on the Fox special. And I went to the uh, uh, the network. I went to the company I was working with, and I said, I got this guy. He's never spoken. This is the FBI guy who investigated this case, the only FBI guy, and he's got new information. And they would not move the air date to put him in that show. Mm. To make a, a, a long story short, you know, I went and met with Phil, and that is what the genesis of the, the dossier really was was just me saying here's a person who has never spoken on this he had the luxury of being inside the fbi and he's telling me not only did he solve the case but that the united states attorney you know basically said we're not prosecuting this and you know the city shut it down um and he had this story at at that time what was also going on is Brad and I um, were taking Randall Sullivan's book, which was Labyrinth, and adapting that to become a film. So you kind of had this weird timing where that was being put together. I had Phil. The script for Labyrinth um, was written by a guy by the name of Christian Contreras, did an incredible job. But there was not – that was more of Russell Poole's story than it was anyone else's. So it just happened that as I was doing the podcast, writing the podcast, we're also doing the film um, uh, that becomes City of Lies. They changed the name of it. Um, so those two things kind of happened in conjunction. Um, but for me, it was about Phil's story had never been told, and that's why I felt the need to tell his story and not sort of regurgitate all the other old information that was out and about, whether it was on YouTube or in books, et cetera, et cetera. And if you notice in Randall Sullivan's new book, you know, I brought Phil to Randall, you know, as Randall was working on his stuff and Randall also was a part of the movie. So it was this sort of, you know, very lucky you know, for lack of a better word, timing is everything. All, all sort of came together at that time. Yeah, it sounds like you know the stars really aligned, man. Some you know, happy accidents there. What did you What did you notice um, 
having done your own deep dive, what did you notice from Phil's work that differentiated his his work and information from everything else you had said that, like you mentioned, had been kind of regurgitated, going down the same road? What did Phil bring to the table that was so unique? Well, he he brought two things, right? Is in this case, what you have to understand is there has never been an interest by the Los Angeles Police Department to solve this murder, right? So enter Phil, who for most of his career has really looked at what is defined as public corruption and what falls under public corruption is corruption of politicians and corruption of police officers. So for Phil, having investigated the Rampart police scandal and saw sort of what was going on there, having investigated an LAPD cop named Ruben Palomares, who was just as bad as Mac and Perez, you know, in bed with the Sinaloa drug cartel. Mm. Phil does that case and sees even more corruption inside the LAPD and them trying to contain the narrative. So when Phil came to, to the to the table, what he's bringing is the tools of the FBI. And the tools of the FBI are vastly different than the tools of any police department that's a city police department, but secondarily, especially a police department that wants to contain and control a narrative, which is the murder of um, Big. And, you know, he was able to do wiretaps. He was able to pull financial records. And what I started to realize about Phil Carson, and it, it took me some time to, to, to understand who he was, who he is, it, it was this idea that Phil will not say anything in a public manner if he does not know it's 100% true. Right. I didn't realize that as I started to work with him. You know, A lot of times law enforcement people, they have an ax to grind or you know they they they've been maligned at their job they they've had a bad exit here was phil highly decorated fbi career um highly respected you know th this was a guy who if he said something it was true and he he conducted himself um publicly with what he revealed to me with what was revealed in his investigation i always knew and i and i now know more than ever that the things that phil goes on the record with are completely true and he would never in a million years fabricate anything because one he believes that this case will someday be solved and he'll might have to take the stand um, to testify and secondarily to that that that's who he is at his core and that's who he was throughout his whole career well and he has no real i mean other than getting to the truth he has no axe to grind he's not you know the city you know bernard parks of the city of los angeles who's already paid out tens of millions if not more in you know corruption cases whether it had to do with kevin Gaines, whether it had to do with the rampart and mac and perez i mean like i said valetta wallace's case which was pushing upward you know 500 million pushing upward to a billion would have completely broke the city so obviously lapd has a huge motivation and reason to cover this up whereas phil has no real axe to grind nothing to benefit from from telling the truth yeah and 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 that and that's that's what i think separates him from um a lot of people who have sort of taken 
the mythology of Big and Pac um, and, you know, to this day continue to sort of distribute misinformation or to distribute, you know, what I like to call sort of red herrings into the, the zeitgeist of all of this. Yeah. And that, that was another reason for the dossier was was sort of this idea of like, can we just like chill for a second and 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 look at what exists from a factual standpoint, not hearsay, not, you know, some of the bullshit that has been put out there, just just the facts. And how about this? Why don't we base those facts on actual documents that exist. Right. And so the combination of Phil and the combination of the documents that I had in my possession was me saying, well, don't take my word for it. Here are the documents. And and that is the purpose of season two is I will be releasing all of the uh, FBI, all of the civil trial documents, all the documents that I've compiled over the course of the last five years to the public, to other journalists, so that they can read them themselves. You know, I'm not here going on the record with, you know, my philosophical leanings about what happened. I'm saying, well, here's a document that says this. Here's a document that says that. Um, and, And these documents were given to me by Sergio Robledo. These are documents that I've acquired um, in different, you know, ways from from people off the record who decided to, um, you know, give me these documents so I could report on them. So that's what I was really trying to do and will continue to do in season two um, as it comes up um, to be released in in late October is just kind of stick to the facts in a time where. A lot of this shit is just getting lost and, and super convoluted, like you said, with all the, you know, whether it's Greg Kading. I mean, there's just so many people who's just spitting nonsense as it relates to this. And obviously, 20 years, however many years later, shit can get easily convoluted. And again, like I said in the beginning, there's so many layers to this, so many names. You throw out a name right here, Sergio Robledo, you know, former LAPD cop hired by Vladimir Walsh. Who, who's Sergio Robledo and the, his role in all of this? Yeah, I mean, Sergio, uh, he he he's he passed recently. Um and, and and he was an incredible man. He, here's a guy who gives his life to the LAPD. Um, he is, you know, arguably one of the 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 best homicide in investigators inside the LAPD. Um, South Bureau homicide, which is one of the busier um, you know units within the LAPD. And you know, for for Sergio. Um, you know, he, he was an interesting character to me because again, here is a guy, he, he does, he doesn't really have an ax to grind. And he would always say these things to me, you know, listen, Don, not everyone within the LAPD is corrupt, but there was obviously a miscarriage of justice here that they should correct and they're not. And here's what I know, you know, and Sergio also was a guy who, Again, if you want to talk about knowledge, he did a forensic financial investigation into death row. He, you know, interviewed probably more sources of information than the LAPD investigators who were supposed to do that. Wow. He did his own investigation. 
And what I really like to try and tell people, if you want to really look at the dance card and the scorecard of this case, you start with Russell Poole, who does his investigation. Phil Carson does his investigation after that via the FBI. Sergio does it for Valletta Wallace and, and Perry Sanders. And then another person, Richard Valdemar, who was a, a gang investigator for the sheriff's office. Those four people who are highly decorated come to the same conclusion yeah. and, and basically put forth the same narrative. Now, the only person on the other side of that is Mr. Cading. And I don't even know what Reggie Wright even believes anymore because he's lied so many times. I can't keep it straight. People send me stuff that he says. It's 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 like one day he says one thing, one day he says another. He's just saying stuff so people possibly maybe listen to him on YouTube. And you know, I don't have a problem with Reggie. I find him immensely fascinating and actually fun that he's he's made a career out of basically saying whatever he wants from week to week and people <laughs> listen to it. Well, it sounds like he pretty much doubles down on the Katie narrative as, as it relates, especially Biggie. You know, it was Poochie. It wasn't Amir. It wasn't Harry Bill. Anything to insulate the LAPD, which obviously he was a part of. His father was a huge part of us being, you know, the gang unit in Compton. But yeah, I mean, he vacillates a lot, but ultimately he still does the anything to stay away from the LAPD's involvement. Yeah, which I don't, I, I don't even understand you know why I, I really at this point I, I I I'm very I'm highly confused he, he actually called me yesterday I'm gonna try and give him a call and I'm sure he wants to maybe talk about he somehow I think would feel vindicated with the uh recent arrest I guess I, I, I have no idea I, I'm not as you know uh haven't really investigated as much uh, of Tupac as I have Biggie, um, but I, I'm sure he probably is doing some form of victory lap, you know, with with the arrest of Keefe D for some reason. Well, possibly, and we're going to get into a little bit of that later. But you know, as, as City of Lies, man, as that started out, that movie starts out. You know, some of the players obviously enter that that first opening scene. You got Kevin Gaines and you got Frank Liga. Kevin Gaines, LAPD police officer, and this is I don't know a few weeks after Biggie's killed. You know, I don't know whether it was organic or what the deal was, but Frank Liga and Kevin Gaines have a face-off, you know, road rage incident, and Kevin Gaines wound up getting shot by Frank Liga, enter Russell Poole investigating that, and he finds out that the vehicle that Kevin Gaines is driving, the Green Montero, is uh, registered to, I believe, either Sharitha Knight or Death Row Records, one of the two, and then thus Russell tumbling down the rabbit hole and finding out, you know, these cops are doing security for Death Row, and, you know, the rabbit hole goes pretty, pretty deep as he finds out. Yeah, Kevin Gaines, another interesting, interesting character, um, you know, pops up in 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 the sort of the same world and orbit as Mac and Perez and, and all of these guys. You know, for me, I think the 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 jury's still out on sort of how involved Gaines was. You know, I, I've heard rumors that possibly, you know, he was the one that orchestrates helping you know snoop's legal team find a way for that evidence um to disappear when snoop is on trial for murder um you know i i've heard that you know there was that that 
Liga Gains meeting that is in City of Lies, uh, although it, it's somehow sometimes reported as a you know coincidence that those guys ran into each other. Maybe it wasn't a coincidence, you know, with how wrapped up, you know, all of those guys were in the sort of underbelly of that time. Um, but really, really fast. I mean, listen, the Liga Gaines story o- almost deserves its own um, <laughs> documentary. Yeah, you know, I agree. if you start to go into what happens to Liga um, in his, you know, board of rights hearings what what you know happens to Gaines I think Gaines's family goes on to sue the LAPD there's a lot there I it, it might be worth at some point you know going back and 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 looking at that particular incident um as a bigger narrative but all really fascinating well uh, that shooting took place March 18th 1997 like again a week and a half maybe after Biggie was killed and no you're absolutely right and that's why I was wondering if it was organic with Liga because uh, Gaines had a 25 million dollar Johnny Cochran had filed a 25 million dollar lawsuit for the family against the LAPD I'm not sure if that was wrongful death or violation of civil rights or something like that but again that was another big financial hit that the LAPD was going to take so that's why I was wondering about the the Liga Gaines thing was he just had to become a nuisance and had to get rid of him type thing? So, I mean, obviously, I'm not sure about that one, but I believe you're right. That's a that's a whole other story in and of itself. Yeah, it's it's really fast. Like, just again, um, just really, really, again, another layer of this story that you really can't, you know, <laughs> make up in it, and it's built for Hollywood. Yeah, totally. um, and again, you know, listen – who knows what gains and, and, and some of those guys were also doing during the rampart years, you know, I don't think it's been fully, you know, unpacked of, of how deep their crimes, you know, really were. Um, again, another, another story that I know, um, another document, one of the big time documentary filmmakers, I believe is working on for Netflix right now, um, whether he gets to the bottom of it or he gets, you know, Perez to talk or, you know, listen, I think Mac would talk, um, for, for, a a, a, a truckload of money. Um, <laughs> what he, what he would ultimately say, you know, who, who knows, um, could be interesting. Um, so, you know, these are stories that, you know, still the, the, the real truth behind them you you maybe will never get to you know yeah that's another parallel to kind of like jfk it's like there's so many stories so many theories but when will we ever really really know you know and going back to you know the dirt those guys were doing your david max your rafael perez you know rafael perez winds up going and stealing i think it was six pounds of cocaine out of the evidence locker from liga's investigations i don't know if that was like retribution for him killing his boy or what but you know Again, part of the financial thing of why I think the LAPD wanted to keep a lid on all this LAPD related to Biggie because, you know, through that Rampart business, the LAPD had to pay out, I think it was like $125 million to, you know, reversing cases and all this stuff because of what Rafael was doing. And I don't know if you heard or believe, but, you know, Rafael Perez is supposedly the basis of, of uh, Alonzo, the character in Training Day. Yeah, you know, it's it's. It's interesting. I, I forget who I was speaking to re- recently who's, who said the same thing. I think what I've always been told is is 
although they say it's Perez, um, really who everyone was afraid of was was Mac. Not saying that Perez, you know, was was not a, a, an evil character, but from what I've been told, you know, and and Phil Carson I think even speaks about it, you know, Mac was the real deal. Um and uh definitely instilled fear in in people um and and again you know if you really want to get to the heart of it it's like you know perez admits to crimes in rampart and when they go to investigate some of those crimes you know a lot of what he says doesn't add up it doesn't sort of connect so who knows what he you know his narrative his public narrative versus what they actually did you know yeah they like to talk a lot of smack but david mack i mean he is an interesting character man he was brought in recruited to the police department by bernard parks i mean there's pictures of mack and perez and you know what, what are your thoughts on that just that part alone how parks brought mack in not that that means necessarily any dirt was done but another reason to kind of cover it up because like parks man this guy's doing all this dirt you brought him in what are your thoughts on that affiliation and the fact that Parks recruited him? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the 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 Bernard Parks again, a very sophisticated operator. Um, he he was also interviewed for this Fox show that I did, and um, I I think what what struck me about him is is this guy was a seasoned you know politician who came up in a very racist LAPD, my assumption would be, but yet rose to the top of it. So you, you had a guy who was immensely um, sophisticated in, in, in dealing with internal politics of a police department. Uh, and, you know, I think he kind of, you know, for lack of a better words, you know, might be referred to as the Teflon Don of all of this. <laughs> Um, in, in how he handled it publicly, um, and continue to handle it after his career, you know? Um, and, uh, another, another guy who interesting story who, you know, probably needs his own documentary about his, his career and rise to the, to the top of the LAPD. Well, and those guys, you know, were obviously, feeling pretty untouchable. I mean, all of them kind of had their vibe of, of Teflon, you know, Kevin Gaines, you know, I mean, just, you know, David going to David Mack, you know, November, 1997, a few months after Biggie shot, he coordinates this bank robbery with this girl who ordered this money and he steals like 700 K does some time for it, but just goes in and robs a bank. Yeah. I mean, takeover style, you know, the, the, the infamous Michael Mann, you know, movie heat yeah, sort of, yeah, absolutely. sort of in, in that style with ski masks. And, um, you know, the one thing that a few people have said, and, you know, I, I can't, you know, obviously I don't have the document, you know, the documentation, but, you know, the, the idea that he robbed the bank in order to pay Amir, um, because, you know, Suge did not pay the money um, under this idea that he wanted to kill Puffy and, and, and not big, you know, I, I'm not sure if that's just, you know, more um, urban myth than it possibly is the truth. Um, in, in this story, it's possible. That's why he robbed the bank. 
um, and and people have told me he that's the reason he robbed the bank was was to take care of that debt to to Amir. Um, but obviously, I don't have that proof. It's sure. more hearsay and, and speculation at this point. Well, and even something I hadn't heard before, but Phil talks about it in the dossier. Puffy, they were trying to get both of them. Puffy was the original intended target, but as Gene Deal talks about, he instructed his driver to blow that light so they couldn't get to Puffy. So Biggie wound up stopping, and he, whether it was collateral damage or he was just, that was the only one they could get. But I found it interesting that Puff was supposedly the original target that night. Yeah, and and sort of makes sense in the narrative. And, you know, it's obvious they, they had some form of surveillance set up in order to determine who was in what car um, or, or not, right? In those situations, you know, tensions are high. You know, you can only imagine someone setting out to kill someone, um, you know, and, and, you know, who knows if, you know, what car they were targeting, but um, that is something that Phil said, um, you know, that, that, that Puffy was the target that came from one of his confidential informants or confidential sources um and and that tracks in terms of a narrative when it's interesting too because obviously there's so much speculation biggie was leaving bad boy and you know so it could be you know if everybody's heard you know a lot of these artists are worth more dead than alive so i mean i think that kind of i i found that interesting because at first i was just like oh biggie's leaving you know i could see them taking care of big to like worth more dead than alive but it was interesting to hear that puffy was possibly the original target but something you had mentioned you know, people were coordinating with radios, whether it was Rafael Perez, David Mack. Were they, was, was Death, um, I'm sorry, Biggie and Sean and all those guys, were they under surveillance by, it sounds like the ATF, DEA, or FBI, or at least one of those three, the night that that happened? Well, the the surveillance came from an, an actual investigation that was out of New York. Uh, there was a detective whose name was Bill Oldham or William Oldham. And uh, from what I've been told or, or, or what I've seen in terms of documents, it was some form of a, of a, of, of a narcotics or gun investigation. Um, now, whether these guys from New York were also sort of in that area on that particular night, I don't know um, if they had followed them to L.A., you know, and, and, and I think what what people have to understand about sometimes with surveillance and these units, you know, surveillance costs money. It's not like you see on, on the TV or, or movies, you know, a unit gets sent out to New York to track anyone. They might have said, well, guess what? You have two days to do surveillance figure out if it's making sense if it's not you got to get on a plane and come back home <laughs> these guys are working for the nypd they're not working for the fbi or dea when you could sit on houses for months at a time so it's very well that that they did have surveillance at a certain point while they were in were in la and then that surveillance team went home right right um or very well they could have been there that night and saw what they saw but again what what would they do with that information? Probably nothing. It's not their case. Maybe, right. Maybe they shared it with the LAPD and said X Y Z, but it why that wouldn't really matter at that point, right? right? I mean, if you if you 
understand that they're not interested in solving the case, no matter what information is given to them, no matter what video exists, no matter what pictures exist. Right. It all sort of doesn't matter, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, as far as like identifying, like, you know, when Gene talks about he was shown whether it was FBI surveillance footage or just any kind of circuit, closed circuit footage, he was shown the picture of Amir Muhammad. Walk, and what Gene always talks about, this guy walked up to me and Puff's van first. I you know, showed him my gun and he walked off. Gene was shown that picture of Amir Muhammad, you know, blurred out or whatever, and I didn't know where that came from. I didn't know if that came from FBI footage or just... just... Well, I, I think you have to, you know, inside the FBI files, there also is um, screen grabs of surveillance video that night. And, it, and, and, and the answer to this is, is very, very simple. If you've been to the Peterson Automotive Museum or if you were there on that night of the party or any night for that matter, it's an automotive museum. They have millions and millions of dollars worth of automobiles inside of the building so you would have to protect that merchandise but probably a a a certain amount of surveillance cameras that were on the inside and the outside of the building so it's my contention having seen screen grabs yes that there was surveillance video on the inside of the you know where the valet area was Mm -hmm. and it's quite possible there was cameras pointed you know, out onto the street and that exists. Um, I've seen the screen grabs of it, so I know it exists. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think Phil talks about it. He talks about seeing pictures, you know, inside the LAPD robbery homicide books when he goes to meet with Steve Katz, the detective who at a certain point was, you know, the, the, the lead investigator. He talks about, yeah, there was pictures, there was surveillance you know, video screen grabs. And the second time he visited this information magically disappears out of, you know, the murder, the, the murder books. Um, I found that fascinating. So, well, and Steve Katz, once again, another name you got to dust off here. Steve Katz, if I'm correct, is one of the reasons why there was the case was dismissed or was some kind of mistrial in the, in the lawsuit because Steve Katz was hiding documents inside of his desk. Yeah, I mean, it's really a joke, right? Uh, You know, you have a guy who is in robbery homicide, tasked with or is one of the, you know, investigators, and uh, he is hiding uh, files inside of his desk uh, during the civil trial. He's hiding files that really should have been discovery for the Wallace family in their civil suit against the city of Los Angeles. Yet they're locked in this secret cabinet. There's a source within LAPD robbery homicide that, you know, gets this information to Perry Sanders and the legal team. Um, And again, why does this isn't surprising that this stuff is hidden? Because if you do are not interested in um, solving a murder, if you're not interested in providing the Wallace family and their lawyers with the mandated discovery material, then yeah, you lock it in a cabinet or you put it in a, 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 an area of the LAPD that you can really contain with very savvy, smart operators who, you know, are used to at times controlling information and controlling narratives. And then that all makes sense. Right. 
Um, how does he get away it, with that? If everyone knows Katz did that, how is that an obstruction charge or something come with that? If everybody knows he did it, I mean, it's a, probably a dumb question. Uh, again, a great question. Uh, a head scratcher of <laughs> head scratchers as has like this. You know, there's there's many moments in this story that do not make common sense. Um, but when you put it all together, you know, it it it, it makes sense. For the LAPD and what they want and, and what they want to do. Well, like you said, or in, in the dossier, if the cases like this don't go unsolved unless they want it to not be solved. And I mean, like you said, so many freaking head scratchers, which just, in my opinion, just belies just the obvious thing that they're they're obviously lying. They're obviously covering it up. But you know, going back to like some of the main players involved, like David Mack and his association with what most people believe was the trigger man, Amir Muhammad, um, Mr. Billups. David Mack, you know, he was an athlete out of, I believe, Oregon, ran track. And, and Nick Broomfield's the last man standing, something I found absolutely crazy, which I'm not Im- implicating her in anything. But Tupac's manager, Layla Steinberg, was one of David Mack's trainers at Oregon in the 80s. Is that crazy or what? Yeah, that that was something that, I, uh, you know, obviously I saw it and then I was reminded of it very recently. And again, you know, she goes on the record in that documentary and says, you know, he was around. Uh, she saw him. She knew him. Right. Um, again, sort of a uh, for lack of a better word, another bizarre sort of piece yeah. of the puzzle with somebody finally coming out and saying, you know, parts of it and, and telling the truth. And, you know, it, it's it's always like the the mystery of, well, were these guys like around, you know, death row? Were they, you know, a part of death row? Were they affiliated or are there pictures of them with, you know, Suge and pictures of them with the artists, et cetera, et cetera? Um, again, another stunning piece of information and 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 great work by Nick, who you know, obviously, um, has done two documentaries now on this. Um, and, and, and maybe at a certain point we'll do a third if there's ever, you know, a solution to all of this. Yeah. Gosh, who knows? But, you know, in, in the, the creating the tie between Mac and, uh, Mac and, uh, Billups, they knew each other, like I said, going back to Oregon and we can place Billups there the night at the Peterson museum, it's it's just again one of those head scratchers and another thing that another huge head scratcher when when Mac's home was raided, you know Russell Poole I believe and other officers raided the home of David Mac. They found, you know, a Impala, which is believed to be the car that was involved in the shooting, and then they also found a certain type of ammunition, this very rare gecko rounds. But you know another thing that just becomes obvious as to the cover up. Russell was not allowed to do forensics on the car to test the car to do any kind of forensics, and he was not allowed to do any ballistic investigation on either the shells or the gecko rounds that they found in Max's house. What are your thoughts on that? More evidence of a cover up, perhaps? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I I think it's it's pretty obvious that they didn't want Russ Poole to do his job. Uh, and- as, as much as he tried and as much as they fought him and, and, and basically ruined his his what was a stellar career, you know, this idea 
that again um that russ Poole had some tainted reputation is just the farthest thing from the truth if you go back and look at his record um you know and and again he's just a guy you know who as a homicide investigator is trying to get justice for a family um and he's trying to do his job and for for the first time, you know, maybe maybe there was other times that they told him to look the other way. But for the first time, you know, people are coming to him and saying, hey, Russ, you know, why don't you relax? Come play, you know, come play golf with us. Yeah. Don't worry about that. Um, and, and really a tragic, you know, story that um, that the that, you know, some people have painted him as this sort of, you know, down and down and out, down on his luck, um, you know, investigator where throughout 98% of his career, yeah. he was a decorated cop, you know, and a hero. Yeah, that's uh, what I'm saying. You don't get to the upper upper really levels to say. The upper levels, upper echelon of robbery homicide in Los Angeles department for almost 20 years if you're some kind of like, you know, nutty gumshoe you know how they painted him. he was the man up until the point where he wasn't until he's like you said started putting a mirror up to those guys' face and you know showing them who they were and it is it's it's such a heartbreaking story man when i remember years ago when i heard that he passed it was cuz I, I mean i was just a big fan of his work and i think he was pretty spot on and to hear what happened to him you know I, I, well it's just very very unfortunate man um i'm going to throw out a few names at you man that just have popped up during this whole thing what are your thoughts? Another person I ran into in Nick Broomfield's documentary, I found him pretty fascinating, and apparently he was double-dipping working at the LAPD in addition to being undercover FBI. Kevin Hackey, what are your thoughts on him and his information on these cases? Remember, Tupac, obviously not Tupac, but he talks about Tupac too, but Biggie as well. Is he, re- um, is he reliable? You're saying Kevin Hackey? Yeah, is he, is he reliable? or is, you know? It's... Well, you know, it, it, it's pretty here's what I'll say about Hackey and I'll base what I say about Hackey from Sergio Robledo is Sergio used to laugh and, and, and say, you know, there's been this picture painted of Kevin Hackey as, you know, this guy who's, who's crazy or he's, you know, he's not telling the truth, blah, 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 blah. Yet Kevin Hackey's security company that he, you know, built from the ground up himself, you know, Got he got bought out for like thirty million dollars or some crazy crazy high number. So he obviously was doing something right in right. his life. Um, you know, again, I you know I don't see the axe to grind with Kevin Hackey of of why he makes up a story for what. You right. know, again, here's a guy who goes into business. He he seemingly now I heard is on a boat somewhere. Um you know, at that time was just telling the truth and, and kind of was on the inside of all of this. Um, and obviously spoke to, you know, a number of law enforcement agencies about it. So I, you know, Sergio always thought that Kevin Hackey was above board and, you know, I would take Sergio's word over almost anybody, pretty much everyone, um, because of what his knowledge was. Well, and is it, you know, is what he said about the Tupac case, but I was just wondering, you know, how credible you thought he was because he was saying, as far as these guys, record companies, put both Pac, Biggie, Bad Boy, and Death Row, he was saying Death Row in Vegas was under surveillance as well, and there was a car of FBI, like three or four cars behind uh, Pac and Suge when that shooting happened. So I didn't know. I didn't know 
it's hard to, like you said, it's hard to take so many people at their word. You just never know who has an axe to grind or who's who's full of shit, really. Yeah, whether the FBI was following, you know, Suge, um, I I know for a fact at a certain point they were following him, um, and and that was something I think that was discussed um, on the Reggie Wright episode, um, and in the dossier now whether they were uh, again particular night it's not the movies and television where if you're under surveillance they're just there with you 24 hours a day right people have schedules just like regular people who work right cops maybe work 12 hours or 10 hours and then they go home right so um it's very well there could have been i i don't know that for a fact the rabbit hole goes deep. It goes deep. Well, and you had also mentioned Perry Sanders. You mentioned him a few times. That's just to qualify who he is. That's one of the lawyers um, that Valletta Wallace had hired uh, for the lawsuit. Uh, throwing out a couple more names at you as it relates to David Mack, Amir Mohammed, somebody you brought up on the dossier. Who is Psycho Mike and what's his role in this? You know, Psycho Mike was actually uh, an informant that um, I know Richard Valdemar, who was a a top level gang investigator for the L.A. County Sheriff's Office. He used Psycho Mike for a number of of high level drug gang um, uh, investigations. And 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 Psycho Mike was a trusted source. with Valdemar and Psycho Mike then became a source of Phil Carson. Um, Psycho Mike was in that world. He was in the world that Amir Muhammad, you know, circulated in. He was in the world of Compton and South Central and the sort of criminal underbelly at that time. You know, if you really want to understand who Psycho Mike was in his role, I would encourage people to go back to the dossier and listen to Valdemar's episode. I forget what episode number it is, but I do speak to Richard Valdemar about Psycho Mike. And, you know, Mike was a very reliable individual. Um, You know, there is a story when he was going to do a deposition that Sergio told me that Psycho Mike was terrified to um, do the deposition because he knew how deep this all went Mm. and there's like this incredible story of him like they they have him like in a hotel and they're gonna do the deposition and psycho mike kind of like leaves a hotel and they can't find him it's a it's an incredible story but he he really he really was a gangster and he sort of became a source for law enforcement and a very credible one at that because if you know anything about valdemar or valdemar did some heavy heavy gang and drug investigations nickerson gardens you know one of the one of the heavy places in la for gangs um and just gangs in general in in south central right one of the epicenters so um he also becomes a source and does a deposition i've been told i've i know people who have watched psycho mike's deposition and said it's riveting um i believe and, and i i i i don't i know i'm probably not misremembering but i believe sergio showed a few of of my sources the actual deposition that psycho mike did it was pretty incredible 
And wasn't there, I think Phil or somebody mentioned in the dossier, a cycle Mike going to Amir Muhammad's house and them having a conversation on the doorstep there? Yeah, that, that, that's when he had, um, you know, cycle Mike wired up. Um, and, uh, you know, you know, Phil tells that story of sending cycle Mike to, to meet Amir, um, and, and, and interaction that was had at his house. Um, you know, obviously Phil trying to get Amir on tape. Um, and, uh, there was some, you know, for lack of a better word, recognition by Amir, um, with Mike. But again, this is very heavy stuff that they were trying to do. Um, and obviously, uh, uh, Amir being sophisticated enough, you know, sort of started to avoid Psycho Mike. Well, I mean, as Phil said, if someone came to my doorstep and I had no fucking clue what they're talking about, I'd be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. That conversation would last 15 seconds. But it sounded like there was a dialogue. And granted, there wasn't any admission. But if you don't know this person from Adam, you know, why is the conversation taking so long? I thought that was pretty telling. Yeah. Another name, Mario Hamlin, which I found interesting because it gets into possibly Suge having something to do with, you know, paying people to, to knock off big, et cetera. Mario Hammond, interesting cat, informant, secret service, FBI, LAPD, said Suge asked him if he could kill big at a certain point in time. Talk to me a little bit about Mario Hammond. Yeah, another another interesting, interesting character. Um that that I actually personally went and, and met with. If I think he's 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 a little bit angry with me currently for some reason. I haven't been able to determine why. Um, as his story has been, you know, told over and over again. But yeah, another guy in his own words, um, agent provocateur is a guy who comes out of Oakland. Uh, you know, says that his pedigree is 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 coming out of the world of Felix Mitchell, who arguably is is one of the biggest ever, you know, Oakland based uh, drug dealers. Pretty incredible story. If you if you haven't um, listened or went and read anything or watched anything on Felix Mitchell, he's a pretty incredible guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mario, again, is around all of this. Uh, around Pac, he's around Suge. He, you know, is a guy who 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 is in jail. Um, and uh, you know, according to him and, and other reports, a part of the Black Gorilla family. Um, yeah, and and again, I think gives information periodically um, to to LAPD. Um, you know. I just recently released his deposition that was taken inside of San Quentin prison. And if you haven't listened to that, it's a pretty, it's a pretty, uh, I did. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, listen that, that the video of that will also be released, um, in late October when I release season two, so people can watch it themselves. Um, and, 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 and take a look at, at him inside, um, being questioned by, uh, Valletta Wallace's lawyer, Rob Frank, and um, the lawyers at that time for the city of Los Angeles. What are your What are your thoughts on his claim that Biggie or that Suge at one point in time approached him to kill Big? Well, you know, I I I sort of also talked to Sergio about the credibility of of, of Mr. Hammonds. Um, 
I, I would say I, I don't doubt that. Um, it seemed like, you know, at a certain point he protected or was a part of protecting, you know, Suge when, when he was in, in prison. Uh, so again, and this is, this is one of these characters that is, you know, just floating around and spends time with, you know, the, the people involved in all of this. Well, another name that came up that kind of is in the same vein of a solicitation to kill Biggie and this gentleman, I believe it's the same person, Kenneth Boagney. Um, what, what's his role in all of this? Yeah, Kenny Boagney, another incredible guy, you know, former former baseball player um, and and gets in trouble um, as a young guy. He actually just recently got released from prison. But he spends time in jail with Perez um, and and tells like this in, incredible story about his time with Perez in jail and the number of, of different things that the you know Perez told him um, while he was locked up with Perez. Most notably uh, so that again, he was there. Like First hand story of an. I'm sorry. Most notably, yes, he told him that and, he was there that night that, that Biggie died. Perez was sorry. Yes, exactly. Um, and, and tells this incredible story. You know, they would go to church and inside the prison. Um, and, and uh, you know, Perez sort of, uh, you know, got some things off of his chest, one of them being that he was there that night. Uh, but Kenny, you know, tries to um, tries to 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 again, give this information to the proper people. Um, there's a incredible story uh, about Don Vincent who at the time was a part of the city of Los Angeles sort of power structure in the civil case and you know Don Vincent comes to visit Bo Agni I believe in in upwards of three times um, in one of those um, instances he kind of threatens Kenneth uh, you know basically saying like if you keep talking about this you know we'll find a way to put you under the jail and again, you know, the, there are prison logs of, of Don Vincent uh, meeting with Kenneth Boagney. Uh, there is the, the Board of, of Rights hearings that Xavier Hermosillo um, in Dossier Season 1 goes on the record and talks about, you know, Kenny Boagney's testimony at a Board of Rights hearing where he's basically told to just shut up by the city lawyer. Um, again, person who is there to offer up some information. LAPD, City of Los Angeles, not really interested in hearing it or putting it on the record for many reasons. Imagine that. Well, and, and what he had said to Perez, and what are your thoughts on the rumors of Perez not only being there that night, he apparently was in uniform that night, and I've, I've heard or read or seen that he was attempting to obstruct the scene and either trying to remove or obfuscate or take some of the shells. I've actually seen crime scene show crime scene photos of shells there. So he obviously didn't get all of them. Have you heard, what are your thoughts on that? Like Perez? Yeah. Mess the, with the crime scene. The, the reporting is that he was there at a certain point on scene. Um, there also is, you know, uh, paperwork or, 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 or documentation inside of, some of the files I have that, you know, states that he's definitely on duty that night uh, um, and that he was at the scene. It's also been um, shared with me or reported with me that he possibly went to the morgue. I have never been able to verify that. Um, but, 
those other two interesting, you know, elements of of him actually being there is is pretty fascinating. Between Gates, I'm not Gates, but between Mac and Perez being there, and just like the, supposedly the whole coordination. I mean, it's it's just next level, man. It's I don't know, it's it's wild. But before I let you slide, man, this is uh, something that I found what Phil Carson talked about. And as much as, you know, LAPD and everyone's trying to say like, no, nobody was there. Nobody knows everybody and this and that something Phil Carson brought up, which I think Reggie Wright had a live stream the other day and I came up from work and I was listening to it and I had to jump on there. I'm like, Hey, Reggie, what about the internal affairs documents that places your boys at the screen at the scene of the crime? He's like, Oh no, 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 that's a lie. That's bullshit. It's not real. But you know, LAPD internal affairs document, January, 2001, I believe it's C if I got my numbers wrong, forgive me. CF010190 is one of these documents that does that very thing that places these guys there that night. Talk to me about that inter- internal affairs document. Yeah, it, it, again this is in this, this is in the the documented files. I don't have the actual file because that actual file number is mentioned in the document. Um but I'm sure that particular internal affairs document is still within the LAPD. Um, but within some of the document dump that I'll release um, in late October, that you know document will be in there. Um, and again, what it what it just proves is is the LAPD knew that these guys were involved um, and you know went forth trying to do everything in their power to sort of control the narrative and control this idea that, hey, we can't really let let this information out or there's going to be some issues. And how does this relate, if at all, July 1st, 2005, files were removed. Um, these Mac files were removed by Sal Piscopo. Are these different files, or what's what files were removed by Sal? Um, well, Sal Piscopo is an interesting, you know, individual because he worked inside of the risk management group of the LAPD, and obviously, uh, something called risk management. What that particular section of the LAPD would have been doing is that's where they, you know, would look at various police misconduct and have to pay out settlements or uh, money. Okay. Right. So I think what what risk management was used is risk management was being used as a tool by the LAPD to sort of control the flow of documents and the flow of information. Anything that puts Mac and Perez at the scene, anything that connects them while they were on duty puts the city liable yeah right and that's the big danger here so any any persons any documents any reports or whatever that like puts mac and perez there that night would be fodder to be used inside of any civil proceedings by the wallace family against the city of los angeles and the lapd it's to my contention obviously i've never spoken to sal but it's my contention a place like LAPD's risk management would have had very sophisticated operators that Bratton could control and could also control the flow of documents and, and, and information coming in and out of the LAPD. 
Got to protect him. Got to protect. So where is that loss? I mean, like I mentioned, I, I don't want to use the wrong language as to like what happened to it. Was it a mistrial? Was it dismissed? Where is the suit at today? Well, I guess the the last that I've heard is there there's some form of legal nuance where I believe that the children now have to be the ones that refile the civil suit. Mm. Um, I, if I'm being honest. The last I heard, there there really was not a decision on whether they're going to refile. There was times I heard, you know, that Perry Sanders was working on something to refile. There was times I was told by Perry that there was a witness that he had uh, um, that, again, was, in his words, one of the most credible witnesses to date that you know is going to uh that just came forward to speak but i I haven't heard anything in months so i'm not sure whether you know this decision uh, you know by the wallace family to refile i i'm not sure i think it's something that as i launch season two i might try and get more answers on on exactly where that's at um i obviously um, have spoken to Perry Sanders many times, um, and you know he's a phone call away to sort of you know say, hey, what have you heard? Is anything going right. on? I plan on probably you know doing that towards the end of of season two, just to keep it up to date. And you know you you start to wonder with this new you know news last week of an arrest in the Tupac you know murder, whether this has any effect you know, on, on the, on the family or any effect on maybe an investigator in the, in the FBI or in the LAPD to somehow get a conscience here and, and, and maybe, you know, relook at this stuff. Well, you hear a lot of people since that arrest of KPD, a lot of people like, Oh, they solved quote unquote, solved Pac. Are we going to do the same thing for big? So I, I hope that does create you know some momentum towards big but listening to your conversation with randall sullivan who was the author of labyrinth had had mentioned you know the serious serious uphill battle to to refile because of all the legal nuances so i mean i hope something does happen whether through valetta or through the children um it would be good to see yeah that's the hope you know um and you know you think at a certain point the lapd might want this off their books you know yeah yeah. I mean, just to get out from underneath even the potential of the kind of lawsuit. I mean, I know it's been a long time since they paid out the 145 million and this and that. But yeah, I mean, 500 million to 500 million, whatever, whatever year it is. Um, I mean, if you could put your stamp on it, bro, you know, with all the work you've done and, you know, put a definitive stamp. I'm not. What are your thoughts? What happened the night Biggie was shot? In your humble opinion. Well, I think it's obvious that 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 there was a form of a conspiracy that, you know, Mac Perez, Amir um, were either there or in the area, whether Gaines was there. I, I, I've been told it's possible. I, I, I don't know. Um, and, you know, I, I have to sort of lean on Phil here and 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 what he determined through his investigation Um I think there is information that is is with Phil that he still has not released that maybe one day he will. 
um, whether that is, you know, the, the, for lack of a better word, the, the financial trail of who got paid what and, and when. Um, so, you know, it's obvious that, you know, these LAPD players were involved in enough way that the LAPD had to control the narrative and make sure that this this case remains unsolved for very many hundreds of millions of dollars of of settlement payment they would had to have paid the Wallace family. Yeah. Uh, and you know, with Amir Muhammad being the trigger man. No, he's just a mortgage broker, Don. Come on, he's just a mortgage broker. <laughs> That's what he always says. Like, I don't know what you had to come out of yeah, me for. I'm just, I'm just, I, I, I'm just a mortgage. You can be, a, you can, you know, you can have uh, a few different personalities, right? Yeah, no, without a doubt, without a <laughs> doubt. Well, in something, um, Greg Kading always talk about. In like, again, I'm, I co-host another show called The Conspiracy Farm, and we talk conspiracies. But a lot of people try to shut that shit down. It's like, man, there's no way somebody, you know, something so big could be. You know, somebody would talk. Somebody, there's no way to keep secrets like this. Which I think is such a bullshit, intellectually lazy way to kind of dismiss conspiracy theories. Because all you, especially like a biggie case, all you need is like a chief parks to set the narrative, a DA to help control the narrative, and then somebody like a Chuck Phillips in the LA Times to maintain the narrative. That's all you really need to keep this shit going, and it seems to be working. Chuck Phillips, L.A. Times. Well, yeah, but I would all, I would also argue that there are people that have come Talk. forth and yeah. said this is this is the conspiracy, and, and you know, or or this is this is this actually happened. Phil yeah. being one of them. There's many others that have this information. So the the for me, I would think this isn't really a conspiracy theory. This is facts based on information that to what i what i will stand by that is hiding in plain sight and it's there there's even more of it i've just been fortunate enough to be able to to have all of these files to be able to see it in black and white i've explained the majority of it in dossier season one i'll continue to to make sure i explain why these documents are important in season two and, um, you know, so for me, I don't really look at this as a conspiracy theory. You right. look at it like, well, this is what happened and there's actual evidence to prove it. There's people that have said it, but yet now it's it's buried in lies and misinformation. Yes. The misinformation disinformation is a huge part of selling these waters and calling things conspiracy theory is just a kind of throwaway line to kind of dismiss. Like you said, it's conspiracy, but it's conspiracy fact. But uh, before I let you slide, we brought it, you brought it up a couple times. There was a huge arrest. I know you haven't gone as deep into the Tupac thing. I just wanted to get your thoughts on it. First of all, I mean, I think Keefe D is, is, knows way the fuck more than what he's saying, and we'll see what he does say. A couple of things I found very, very interesting with that case. Frank Alexander in his documentary, Before I Wake, talked about how they a couple of people from Death Row Security went to uh, a lawyer's office in Las Vegas. I forget his name. Um, and he was told, uh, George Kalesis was his name, the attorney, told they couldn't carry weapons that night into the club. You know, you get rid of security's weapons. That's that's pretty fucked up if you're, you know, in charge of protecting people. And secondly, Michael Moore, Frank Alexander, rest in peace, and Michael Moore, rest in peace, said when he was getting into the car with Reggie that night, he heard on the next tell chirp, got him, which, again, take that forever you want. And Gene Deal today, big fan, big shout out to Gene Deal, man. i the dude has not changed his story one iota in the last however many years. He did a live today 
And again, this goes to motive, in my humble opinion. He brought up a fax from 8-27-96, a week and a half before Tupac was shot. And it was a fax from Tupac's company to Rightway Security saying, your security services are no longer needed. And then again, this gets into this conversation about how possibly Sharitha Wright, Kevin Gaines, Reggie Wright, or whomever was trying to eyeball taking over death row. What are your thoughts on Keefe D's arrest and whatever limited understanding you have of the, of the Tupac thing and any things I just mentioned as far as motive and people trying to take out Suge to take over death row, et cetera? Sure. Well, I, I guess what we will find out is a few things with his arrest. His narrative to this day, his narrative in, in the book that he wrote, his narrative on, you know, DJ Vlad, all of these places that he's gone to was that he was in the car and Orlando Anderson shot Pac, right? Right. Now, if that is what happened, if that's the story, then um, Keefe has been charged with murder. He hasn't been, you know, he actually was charged with murder. So what that means is, you know, the Vegas PD will say to him, well, is there information you would like to give us that maybe, you know, could cut down some of this sentence? You, you know the drill that happens in these. Yeah. Um, what I guess you would have to understand here is one of two things. Either Keefe is a fall guy for the Vegas PD and everyone else for that matter, or maybe there was a relationship between Keefe and Reggie. Um, and this would be the opportunity if Keefe does not want to spend the rest of his life in jail to maybe tell that story. Right. And who knows? I don't, you know, again, I haven't looked that, that much into it, but obviously there is the sort of competing, you know, theories of, well, was Orlando Anderson just angry and he got, you know, beat up and, they went and killed Pac. That that's been one theory, and then the other theory, obviously, is way more sinister, you know, and involves the characters you just pointed out. You know, that remains to be seen. I think, you know, either way, it's interesting, and you know, I feel the Vegas PD was just tired of having this on their books, and this is a way to, you know, tie the bow on this and and kind of not have people, you know questioning um, it yeah. call them every name in the book for not you know solving this murder they've decided to do it now and you know, we'll see what we'll see what happens right as this plays out um maybe Keefe decides to tell a different story you know again with some of these guys you kind of get to a point where shit he could just make up a story at this point right well yeah um, yeah well and it, it's it's so like i said i think there was much so, much more involved well, in well, both cases but the fact that they throw it away with this gang shit this street shit you know crip blood you know retaliation get back type shit i think that's that's an easy way to kind of uh it's just some street gang shit but like i said i think keith keith knows way more than what he's saying or we'll see it's but, very possible and i think maybe he hasn't had to use that information right but that's his he, trump card if he kind of sitting in uh sitting in uh jail after he's been free yeah. now for a very long time eh, maybe that now is the time to, to to come up with an alternative theory you know well i could see them also leaning into because everybody's like oh puff better because you know everybody swears to god you know puff killed puff paid to kill 
uh, Pac with this million dollar check from Von Zip or whatever the fuck it is. I mean, I could totally see them. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. Well, Everyone's yeah, saying, you know, I mean, Puff, Puff's right giving there, every back like his... The, giving the rumors everybody that publishing yeah the ru- the rumor that there that it's like connected i i just never thought and again i haven't looked into it as much as i've done my research and, right. and stuff with the big case you know i just never it just sounded so crazy to me yeah. um that 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 theory you know but listen you know fuck we live in a time now right crazy, crazy shit happens to be stranger than fiction so without a doubt without a doubt well and it it was interesting because gene deal said um god i had this written down somewhere he had said that von zip told him the million dollar check was for this record label that they bought off of him which was i forget what it was called blackstone or black ground or something like that which was uh alia's uncle and when i looked into blackstone or whatever records that record company was founded by Aaliyah's uncle harry hankerson or whatever in 93 so i i don't that just seemed weird that von zip said they paid me a million dollars for this record label that I don't even think he really owned. So I don't even know if that story was true, but anyway, fascinating shit, man. Like you said, it's, you can never discount anything. Cause in this world, you know, anything's freaking possible. Yeah. Don, I thank you so much for your time, brother. And, um, wow. I'm just really stoked that, uh, you took the time to chop it up with me and I hope I didn't, uh, Hit, hit everybody with too much information but like i said this is such a dense dense conversation and i'm really really looking forward to season two of the dossier coming out i also strongly suggest you check out season one as well as city of lies um shout out any social networking where can we find follow what you're up to brother uh just uh criminalmindedmedia.com is is where all the information will be for season two of the dossier and i'm sort of pointing pointing people there uh, www.criminalmindedmedia.com and obviously if you go to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts type in the dossier season one is up there listen there's also um, a bonus season up there of the story of James Rosemond or Jimmy Henchman that is definitely worth a listen and, and his uh, cases and fight against the southern and eastern districts in New York so and season two um, will be up shortly um, around October 22nd. So um, more more interesting um, looks at not only Biggie, but also Tupac. Very, very cool, man. I thank you so much, man. Keep crushing it. Don Sikorsky has been joining us, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Peace and so much love. Stay tuned. There'll always be more.